You're listening to audio from The Village Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at thevillagechurch.net. Hey church, my name is Gabby Jerky and I serve in the high school ministry. Today I'm going to be reading Galatians 2, 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. How is everyone? Good. Uh, my name is Sam Van Skoik. I serve here as, thank you, thanks. Uh, I serve here as one of the ministers in our student ministry, and uh, I love getting to be one of the student ministers here. It's a ministry that is especially meaningful to me because I grew up in the student ministry here. Uh, my family came here when I was in sixth grade, and I got to go through the student ministry. And looking back, I would say Jesus loved me at my worst, and my youth pastors loved me at my most awkward. So it's a joy to get to reciprocate that to your students. Um, I do love being here, and I love being here with your students in this moment the Lord has us in together. And if they could have half as meaningful of an experience in the student ministry as I had here, I will consider that a win. So it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Um, I feel like in the last year or so, I've checked some things off the adulting bingo card. Uh, a few months ago, Anno, my wife and I, we welcomed our first child, our son Jude, into the world. Yep. Uh, he is 50% Mongolian and 100% chunk of love. So he is the best. Uh, and he's added a new pace to our lives that was not there previously, but so grateful that he's here. Um, and also last year, by the Lord's grace, we were able to move into our first home as a married couple. Uh, y'all, being a first-time home buyer here, it's like showing up at Walmart after all the Black Friday deals. It's like, I don't think there's a lot for me here right now. <laughs> Uh, so it was, it was eight months of waiting and rejection and more waiting and more rejection. Uh, luckily, we had the world's most patient realtor ever. Uh, but after eight months of looking, the Lord finally uh, opened a door. We were able to move into our first home together. And when you move into that first house, you, you see no flaws, right? Uh, there is nothing that could go wrong. Like you move in, especially after waiting eight months for a house, it's like a honeymoon. It is like a honeymoon season with this new house. And then uh, that first storm comes a month after you move in and blows down your back fence. True story. That happened to me. Uh, you move in. 
only to get acquainted with property taxes. I feel like everyone else has like a manual for like how to deal with all this stuff. And I'm just like making it up as I go along. So I was, I missed the day like we handed out manuals for all this stuff. And then also you're taking more trips to Lowe's. And do you know Lowe's motto? Never stop improving. That sounds like death. Uh, And that's expensive. Uh, Never stop improving. Uh, And all of a sudden, I'm having to like go back to these property tax people saying, I haven't even started improving. Okay, so like let's simmer down here a little bit. Uh, And so you move in and it's like this honeymoon season, right? New house. And it doesn't take long for that honeymoon to become a performance, a performance of maintenance, even a performance of image. Uh, Like I've moved into the neighborhood, now I got to prove that I belong in the neighborhood, right? Never stop improving becomes never stop performing. Never stop earning. Never stop keeping up with everyone else around you. It's amazing how quick that happens. I think as Christians, we can treat grace the same way. I think that we receive the grace of the gospel almost like a honeymoon at first. We are fully aware that we did nothing to deserve God's affection. But then the the longer we're Christians, uh, we feel like we need to maintain our status as beloved children. Uh, As if God's love was initially free, and then we discover there's an annual fee after the first year. Uh, Like once you're in, you got to pay up. Uh, You got to keep proving yourself. You got to keep producing. Uh, You've moved in, never stop improving. Uh, In some ways, this sermon has taken me a year and a half to write. And that's because the Lord has had me marinate for a while uh, in what I'm going to be sharing today. Uh, I don't know how you're wired. I know some of how I'm wired. Um, And I know I'm prone to be especially hard on myself. And I'm prone to feel disproportionate amounts of shame where I shouldn't. And I think I know why some of that is. I will, maybe you can relate with this, maybe you can't. I will take how I feel about myself and I will project it onto God. Like if I'm disappointed in myself, how much more is God disappointed in me? If I feel like I should be further along, doesn't God feel like I should be further along? So the good news that I always need to hear is that God is not a servant to the master of my feelings. Uh, He is unchangeably gracious to me, but I'm still prone to perform. I'm still prone to having to earn and having to achieve what's already been freely given to me in Jesus. So the primary question I want us to consider this morning is how can we grow as Christians 
without becoming merit-based performers. How can we go through the Christian life without falling into the trap of believing that the intensity of God's love for us is determined by our performance for him? How do we keep from falling into that trap? Because it's one I fall into regularly. In your Bibles, meet me in Galatians chapter 2, if you're not there already. Galatians chapter 2, I'm going to read the first two verses of our passage. It says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, you and I, we're picking up in the middle of Paul's rather fiery and explosive letter to the Galatians. Uh, Paul is writing to this group of churches in the region region of Galatia uh, because he's a little upset. Uh, There have been false teachers coming into these churches claiming that Paul left them half converted, uh, that Paul was leaving out the secret sauce to being a Christian. Uh, They were coming in, these false teachers were coming in and saying that you will be justified on the basis of two things, your faith in Jesus and circumcision, which was the entry point to a whole lot of Jewish regulations. Uh, And to Paul's surprise, the churches start to embrace this teaching. They received Paul's gospel in faith at first, that they just needed faith in Jesus alone, but they've quickly started uh, believing that their own works, their own works of the law, actually contribute to their justification. Uh, And when I say justification, what I mean, what Paul means, uh, is he's talking about God's declaring of us being righteous, Because of Jesus absorbing the penalty for our sin and his righteousness gets credited to our account. It's a legal term. It means God's declaring of you being righteous because of what Jesus did for you. So Paul's a little shocked. He's a little frustrated. Uh, Galatians is not necessarily a love letter. Uh, Paul feels like a parent who, let's say you worked hard to get your kid like the perfectly balanced, nutritious lunch, right? I'm talking like veggie straws up in there. And you, you get it all balanced, and then grandparents swoop in with Frosties and crumble cookies for lunch, right? And just like derail the whole thing. So that's what Paul feels like. He feels like these people are coming in, you're messing up. I had it all set before you, and you're coming up and messing up the nutrition of what I'm trying to accomplish here. Uh, so our text this morning is is central for what Paul is doing in Galatians. Our text is going to recalibrate us to the grace of the gospel. It's going to recalibrate us to the grace of the gospel. I want us to notice a few things from this passage. First, the phrase works of the law. If you write in your Bible, underline in your Bible, I would mark that. It's a dense phrase. It's actually used three times in our passage. Uh, What Paul means by works of the law is is those works we do that try to keep God's law, trying to earn God's favor, trying to keep God's law to get in God's good graces. 
Now, this had some ceremonial implications for the Galatians, right? They're talking about circumcision and whatnot. I don't plan on talking about circumcision that much today. I plan on talking about grace. Uh, But for us, this phrase, works of the law, uh, has moral implications. So think Ten Commandments. Think of you trying to obey the Ten Commandments to earn God's favor. You want to prove yourself to be righteous? Work the law. Here's the Ten Commandments. Work it and keep it. But he uses this phrase three times to say that these are not what justify us. If you want to be declared righteous before God, works of the law are not the way to do that. Uh, In other words, works work for no one. Works work for no one. Uh, Catch this. This is interesting. Think about the context. Paul is writing to Christians, to churches, about how to be declared righteous before God. He's reminding the already justified what doesn't justify them. He is having to instill in believers, in Christians like you and me, that their own works don't have the power to be the foundation of their righteousness before God. Uh, I don't know how long you've been a Christian. Uh, I have been one for 16 years. And what, what I have found, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I feel like my works should be able to justify me. Like, I should have this thing figured out by now. Like, my works should show that, like, yeah, everything's together in my life. Uh, my works should be able to justify me. I should be further along. I should be doing better by now. But every time I tell myself something like that, I'm I'm telling myself something that is directly contrary to what Paul says here. That works of the law, earning, striving, uh, will get no one, even me, even you, declared righteous by God. God saves in Jesus alone. And my works, good or bad, do not have the capacity to change that. Only Jesus saves. Uh, What does justify us, though, right? What's the good news? That's the negative side. This is the positive side. What does justify us, what does get God to declare us righteous, is faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Uh, But don't get confused with why faith justify us. Catch me here. You are justified in Jesus, not because of the intensity of your faith, but because of the object of your faith. You are justified. You are declared righteous because of the one your faith is in, Jesus. Uh, Your faith is not a virtue that merits salvation. Your faith is a gift of the Spirit that glues you to Jesus. That's why faith saves, because you get Jesus on the other end, and he saves you. So this is Paul's point so far. Your own works of the law can't justify you. You're justified solely because your faith is in the only one who can save you. Works work for no one. Our passage keeps going, though. Read the next few verses with me. But if, 
in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Okay, what is he saying here? Paul is saying, now that you've come to Jesus, now that you know him as your Lord, as your Savior, don't rebuild the law to be something it's not. Uh, So here's what I mean. Uh, You know what justified Christians still do? Is sin. Anyone figure that out yet? Any of you come to Jesus and still have this sin problem? Eight of us. Great. Okay. Eight of us are still sinners. Excellent. Uh, But to use the language of the text, that doesn't make Jesus a servant of sin. And it also doesn't mean that we should go back to the law to try to earn favor with God, to try to earn our own righteousness. Because verse 19 says that's like rebuilding what's been torn down. Like God has done this really awesome thing in Jesus, so don't go back to the law to try to merit your own salvation. Uh, But the law is, is always a guide, but never a savior. The law is always a guide, but never a savior, right? God's law is good. It points us in the way we should go. It's a path to flourishing and to life. But only Jesus is our savior. The law is always a guide, but never a savior. Uh, Here's the first point I want to make. Enjoy the gift of justification. Enjoy the gift of justification. Being declared righteous by God is a gift. It comes to us as grace. It is an undeserved mercy. So what if, instead of us trying to perform like we need to deserve God's favor, what if we just enjoy that we have it instead? Uh, What if we thought about Christianity more like a branch receiving from a vine than a worker trying to earn his wages. Uh, Because you can't enjoy what you're trying to earn. You cannot enjoy what you are trying to earn. If you believe God's love comes to you based on your effort, based on your works, based on your striving, you will always feel like you are the exception to a freedom that everyone else has. And I think we enjoy the gift of justification best when we're rightly disillusioned about ourselves. When we're disillusioned with the myth that we have any merit to contribute to our own righteousness before God. I've heard one pastor say uh, that God's office is at the end of your rope. As soon as you come to the end of yourself, of trying to live your own way, of trying to earn what you already have, that is where God is at work. So enjoy the gift of justification. You have been forgiven in Jesus. 10,000 years into eternity, you will not be more justified than you are right now. So enjoy it. 
Ride a scooter around at work. I do. Uh, every once in a while, I know your body's a temple. Go get a McFlurry, okay? Jesus has declared all foods clean, okay? Uh, order extra chips with your queso. You'll have less anxiety when everyone else is eating all of them. Uh, take PTO to just do something fun and not work on some project. Uh, play a prank on your kids. They won't see it coming. <laughs> Surprise yourself with doing something fun because you have forgiveness to enjoy. It's already yours. It's a gift. Uh, hear this. It is not our job as Christians to somehow prove over time that we were worthy all along of God forgiving us. I'm going to say that again. It is not our job as Christians to somehow prove over time that we were worthy all along of God forgiving us. Uh, what's freeing, where freedom is found, is knowing you are so loved in your unworthiness. That's what's freeing. So, I said a few moments ago, the primary question I want us to consider is, is how can we grow as Christians without becoming merit-based performers, without thinking that our performance earns us some merit with God. Well, I think this is key, to enjoy what we've already been given, to enjoy the gift of being justified, of being declared righteous, to enjoy our forgiveness. Our passage has more for us, though. Read verse 20 with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So good. Uh, Paul's language here, as one scholar noted, I love this, has moved from the courtroom to the cemetery. He has moved from speaking about God's forensic legal declaring of you being righteous to matters of death and life. He's moved from the courtroom to the cemetery. Specifically, Paul says he's been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There, there is a lot that could be said around that dense phrase. I think it takes us a lifetime to really figure out the depth of what Paul means here. But what I want to highlight is just how fixated on Jesus it is. Uh, that might sound really simple, but I think it has potential to be experientially profound. Paul no longer considers his life his own. And in fact, he just said that his own self did not survive his salvation. Crucified with Christ, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Here's something. When we know Jesus as our Lord, events from Jesus' history become our history. Jesus' story becomes our story. The life the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ are not just remembered by me. They're these living events at work on me, forming me, benefiting me. This is part of what the Holy Spirit does, by the way. 
When you feel peace cover your conscience, when you feel an assurance of faith, when you feel the warmth of love, that is the spirit in you because of the living power of what Jesus did. He is taking what Jesus did and charging you with it. The life of the Christian is a life where at its core is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus become the most important identifiers about who we are. This is life fixated on Jesus. But life fixated on Jesus is not just a life where we think about Jesus a lot. No, it it is a life where who Jesus is and what Jesus did become powers at work on me. Uh, Listen to this quote from Martin Luther. This is the reason our theology, our faith is sure. It snatches us away from ourselves and places us outside ourselves so that we do not depend on our own strength, conscience, experience, person, or works, but depend on that which is outside ourselves. That is on the promise and truth of God. This is why Christianity is good news. It it takes your eyes off of you. It lifts you up out of yourselves. Friends, we are those who have been given a life that snatches us away from ourselves and puts us in Christ. The Jesus that our life is fixated on did two things, according to this passage. Two things. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. Note, it is not me who loved him and gave myself for him. It is he that loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul is a Christian uh, decades before he writes this, and he still can't get over the fact that Jesus died for him. Notice how personal it is. Notice like the first person singular pronoun, me. Not Jesus died for us. Jesus died for me, okay? So you have biblical warrant to think Jesus died for you, right? Just you, personally. Uh, I think the longer we're believers, the more aware we are of just how unworthy we are that the Son of God would love us and give himself for us. Uh, Maybe part of becoming holier is not that we feel more deserving of Jesus' love, but less. This is why one author says that uh, growing in holiness feels more like getting smaller rather than larger. So I recently got a letter in the mail from my HOA. Why are you laughing? I haven't even said anything else. You're just laughing when I say that, right? Uh, It essentially read this. Your front yard is dirt. Fix it. (laughs) So I got a whole yard, front yard, filled with new sod. And if you've put in new sod before, you know it needs a ton of water. Uh, Twice a day, every day, for two weeks, it's just you a hose spraying it in, in the looming dread of a king-size water bill coming. It's like, what will that number be? Um, so I had a lot of time recently where I was standing outside watering my yard, thinking about this. Um, luckily, it's, it, it's not complicated to help grass grow. 
Water, sunlight, air. Water, sunlight, air. Do you know what my grass is going to need a year from now? Five years from now? Decades from now? Water, sunlight, air. The gospel that we first received is the gospel we always need. When we learn the gospel, we don't move on from it to some other secret source of real growth. Uh, Real growth is found in what has always worked. Water, sunlight, air. Jesus loved me. He died for me. He rose for me. The life of Jesus is what saves us, grows us, sustains us, nourishes us. Uh, Being a Christian isn't about discovering the secret fertilizer out there that will help you grow. It's about growing in what has always graced us. Jesus loved me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. Water, sunlight, air. Here's the point. Life is found in what Jesus did, not in what I do. (laughs) Life is found in what Jesus did, not in what I do. If you're trying to find life in what you do for Jesus, it will always elude you. Uh, You'll feel like you are on a treadmill that just won't turn off. But if you plant yourself in what Jesus did for you, that's like putting down roots in the richest soil. Because we don't grow out of the soil of our own performance for God. We grow out of what Jesus did for us. Jesus loves me. Jesus died for me. Jesus rose for me. Jesus lives and intercedes for me. Water, sunlight, air. Life is found in what Jesus did for me, not in what I do for him. Uh, Remember the question we're answering is, how can we grow as Christians without becoming merit-based performers? Uh, So not only do we enjoy our justification, we enjoy the fact that we are forgiven now, uh, but also we get to find life in what Jesus did for us, not in what we do for him, right? Jesus died for me, rose for me, lives for me. This is the water, the sunlight, the air that we always need because we don't grow out of the soil of our own performance. We have one more verse. Read it with me. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul says here that by realizing that he's not justified by his own doing, by his own works, uh, by realizing that he doesn't nullify the grace of God. Because if we could achieve our own righteousness, then the Son of God died for no reason. To nullify something like a contract means to uh, reject it as invalid, right? You like stare at it in the face, you say, it's not valid, rejected. Uh, 
And our passage says that we do that to God's grace. That we look at it in the face and say, we don't need it. If we think that we can save ourselves. If we think we can save ourselves with our own correction. That's like looking at the death of Jesus. Looking at the cross and saying, I don't need it. Uh, At TVC, we have a 2030 vision. Uh, When you go to the eye doctor, they will want you to have 2020 vision. But when you're here at TVC, we want you to have 2030 vision. Badoon. I was proud of that one. Uh, Plus, I heard if we mention the 2030 vision in our sermons that Josh Patterson has to buy us lunch the next week. So, just going to name that and claim it right now. Thank you for that clap. Uh, So we we have a picture, right, as a church. We have a picture, we have a vision of what we want to be true of us come 2030. Uh, In the very first sentence of this vision statement, guess what stuck out to me as I was writing this sermon? We are a welcoming home to thousands of people seeking Jesus Christ and growing in the grace of the gospel. Growing. In the grace of the gospel. It's an interesting phrase. It actually comes from scripture. Actually read 2 Peter 3.18 with me. Peter says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an interesting phrase, right? I think we get what grow in knowledge means, but how do you grow in grace? What does that look like? I think to grow in grace means to not graduate from grace. To know that not just the beginning, but all of the Christian life is nourished by experiencing God's one-way love for you. That's the best definition I've heard of grace, by the way. One-way love. God's one-way love that isn't waiting for you to return the favor It's one-way love that didn't find anything in you deserving of love. It is one-way love despite you. (laughs) Grace doesn't just begin the Christian life. It sustains the Christian life. God's one-way love is the water, the sunlight, the air that we need to grow. So we grow in grace as we become more convinced that our own performance is not the foundation of of God's affection for us. Grace is both our ticket in and our reserved seat. It's how we enter and it's where we stay. Here's what I want to leave you with. If you're wondering, what's this student ministry guy up here talking about? This is it, one sentence. The Christian life is a growth in grace, not a graduation from it. The Christian life is a growth in grace, not a graduation from it. I think fundamentally, this is how we keep from having our Christian lives become about our performance. To grow roots in the grace that we already have. Because you never graduate from needing a savior. You never outmature mercy. And you never outgrow grace. So what if growing as a Christian is not about you being harder on yourself, but more honest with yourself? More honest about your need 
for Jesus, for his grace. Uh, In my own life, a prayer that the Lord has given me in this season is, Lord, help me to be as gracious with myself as you are with me. What if you were as gracious with yourself as Jesus is with you? Uh, My hope for us today is that this sermon would be like a collective exhale. Uh, to take a breath and receive the truth of God's grace for us. Because if we're always hyper-fixated on what we need to do, I think we can get some grace indigestion. It's okay. You have permission today to sit in the fact that you're loved. And guess what? There's nothing you can do to change it. Anne Lamott is on the right track when she says this. If I were going to begin practicing the presence of God for the first time today, it would help to begin by admitting the three most terrible truths of our existence, that we are so ruined and so loved and in charge of so little. We are so ruined, so loved, and in charge of so little where the law and lows tell you to never stop improving, grace and the gospel says you'll never stop being loved. Because grace is a gift we always need and are always given in Jesus. So maybe today we can just enjoy it. Because I think, after all, enjoying grace is the best way to grow in it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do love you. And we praise you and thank you for your love for us. Thank you that your love is strong and as sure as the death and resurrection of your Son. Holy Spirit, I pray that by your power that the love of God would be poured into our hearts. That for each one of us, we would have the assurance of knowing we are seen and loved by you in Jesus. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen.